Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 99 of Groove, the No Treble podcast, which you can always find at notreble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. So who are you and what do you do? My name is Ryan Gullen. I'm the bass player for the band The Sheepdogs. We were just talking. Normally, you're in Saskatoon, but I guess normally now you live in Toronto. I moved to Toronto about eight years ago. I still go back to Saskatoon a fair amount. Still is home, but this is my home really now. So, And the other guys, are they still Saskatoon or are they dispersed to the winds? Well, it's a bit of a mixture. Right now, we have one guy who's full-time in Saskatoon and two other ones of us that are in Toronto. And one of the guys who's playing with us now lives in Austin. How cool. A bit of a North American triangle of locations right now. <laughs> originally from the States or did he move there from Canada? He's actually originally from Montreal. He's French. He joined playing with us this fall. So that was the first run that he just did with us is the first one. And he's recently moved to Austin. Yeah, It's a fun city to be in if you like music, I guess. Yeah, exactly. It's a really cool city. It's a city I really enjoy as well. It's one of those places that I think that it's ever-changing. It's become very much a tech city too. So it's an interesting mix when you mix tech and music. It seems to be what happens a little bit sometimes, for sure. I'm going to ask you a strange thing, Ryan, but I'd like you to talk a little bit about your popularity. And what I mean by that is I'm based here in Montreal in Canada. The name The Sheepdogs has been on my radar for a long time before recording. We were talking about Shom FM, which is the big rock station here in Montreal that supported the Sheepdogs early on that I was a contributor to for a long, long time. Four Junos, the equivalent of the Grammys up here in Canada. A lot of success. For those who are listening outside of Canada, because I actually think the borders on this podcast are predominantly US and beyond, <laughs> how well known do you see the band in relation to the popularity that you have in Canada? I mean, that's always been the the age-old kind of question for Canadian bands is crossing that border. I mean, I just got back from a U.S. tour. Like, it's always been the struggle. I think that we've seen some great successes over the years, both in America and Europe. But our major success has been in Canada. The biggest venues you play and the most notoriety and accolades and things like that of all record sales, whatever, have all been in Canada. But we also have a very interesting, very dedicated fan base. So we did 84 dates on this last tour and a good portion of those were in america and it's our best tour we've had in america in 10 years we really rose to popularity all over the place with the rolling stone competition that we were involved in that saw us sort of competing and eventually becoming the first unsigned band to be on the cover of rolling stone but like anything it's not rolling stone of in 75 or something like that like it didn't suddenly mean that we were this massive band and we've continued to have to a kind of prove ourselves not just be a band that won a competition a band that existed for many years before then we want to have success that is is sustainable and long-term sustainable and a lot of that comes from being out there working we just played to a full room sold out shows all across america but not in 2000 capacity rooms in some of them in 250 to sort of 500 or whatever so it's a lot less than and we do but that being said those 500 people it feels like 2000 with how excited they are that we're back playing it's an interesting one to talk about but it's a common one for canadians too right it was common back when i was in the music business back in the late 80s for sure you had a lot of these canadian bands that were trying to figure out whether or not to even sign in canada 
the idea, at least from mm-hmm. my side, was sign in the U.S. and let them distribute in Canada because of exactly the things you're saying. World changed a little bit since then. You had things like Napster and MP3s and Spotify taking over. <laughs> what was it back then? A, a very crazier, different type of business. For those who don't know, what year was this Rolling Stone cover? When did that happen? That was in 2011. So we got approached at like pre-Christmas 2010 by someone from Atlantic Records that said they had discovered our band. It was a roundabout way. A, a music manager in Toronto had passed our album on to someone at Atlantic because he had heard about us. And Atlantic came to us and said, like, how would you like to be in this competition? It was a random phone call. I'd, like I was driving my car at that point. My day job was I worked with people with intellectual disabilities and I was driving a client of mine in my car and I had to pull over and take this call and he was just sitting in the passenger seat and I just got this life-changing phone call from someone from a 212 area code. So that was a pretty wild one. It was one of those things that it's, we didn't really know what would happen or what, even if in the end we would even be in this competition. And then fast forward to August 2011, we beat out all these other bands and were the first unsigned band to be on the cover. Which still was a very big deal. It was it would like yeah. put us in the limelight, something that we've been chasing for a very long time. I mean, because up at that point, we had minor successes and multiple albums and stuff like that. Not anywhere close to even making a living doing what we're doing, let alone getting to that point. And the music of the Sheepdogs definitely falls into my wheelhouse of what I love <laughs> and what I love to listen to. But I can tell you that even up until that point, I might have tangentially heard your name or a couple songs here or there. But I could close my eyes right now and see the cover because of how much attention it got. And so while you're right that I think back in 2011 and persisting Rolling Stone doesn't hold the stature it did, the media that it generated and the strate- I call them strategic byproducts and business <laughs> the other way, A&R people, managers, other radio stations, it created a lot of noise. I mean, it was a big deal. Oh, it was massive. We went from being an unknown band, kind of losing money on tours to suddenly playing all the big festivals, not only in Canada, but in America as well. Lollapalooza, Bonnaroo, and all these really big shows suddenly were at parties where there's like celebrities and people at them and being taken to all these different things or were being recognized everywhere we go. There was a huge push behind it, which I mean, is an interesting conversation. That's 10 years ago now. It's over 10 years ago. And it's funny to remove because that time period, it happened so fast. It's like that seven year overnight success, right? We were a band for seven years before that and everything happened so fast and things went from us driving in our van to suddenly we were flying from New York to Vancouver to Quebec City to Nashville to New York to it was such a whirlwind and suddenly we were having all these things coming at us and trying to navigate it. So Yeah, it was a very life-changing thing, and almost overnight, it was very much almost overnight. There's a really interesting story in there about the pace, because you Mm -hmm. are doing things a certain way, and it is often one or two things that lead to this strange exponential change in your life where the pace of things get really different. You don't want to say no to things because you don't know how long it's going to last. You're traveling a lot. It can be really discombobulating to the brain, I would imagine. Well, and I think it's also one of those things. We were fortunate because we had so many years of being a band, touring and playing in bars on Wednesdays or whatever. Like nothing really like prepares you for a success, like having to deal with all the BS of playing to nobody on a Wednesday in Kamloops, BC or something like that, right? There's something that definitely comes from that. And I think we were prepared for that, but I also don't think we were because 
suddenly you're in the spotlight. Suddenly people are paying attention to what you're doing. You're going out to places and people know who you are. You're going out to a bar in a random city and people know who you are and are maybe approaching you and people want things from you. And so we were fortunate. We like the manager who uh, Joel Carrier is his name. He managed lots of lots of bands, most notably City and Color, Alexis on Fire, Bedouin Sound Clash, things like that. He was the one who had tapped us into this thing. And so him and his team helped us out. But even then, it's like, even he didn't really know how to navigate some of this stuff because it, like you said, it, it went from being a couple things here and there. Like, for example, we'd never been played on the radio aside from a little bit in our hometown. All of a sudden, we're on like every radio station in Canada. <laughs> we're going and doing these like morning shows and things like that where we're flying into a city and going and doing that. And then we're doing TV hits or whatever. So there is really nothing you can do to prepare yourself for that. There's nothing that you can do that allows you, aside from the fact that I was 26 and full of energy and could bounce back, you know, could go out late nights and still bounce back, you know, maybe a little bit better than I can now. And, you know, this idea that you really do believe in what you're doing. And so there's a bit of a blissful ignorance there that just sort of you have, I mean, it, I always say it takes like a pretty big confidence just to get up on a stage as a band because you have to decide that there's something you're doing that's more important than the other stuff that's going on. So there is a certain like cockiness or a certain like blissful ignorance that has to exist in order to even get to that point where getting up on stage and pushing that out. But then beyond that, to be in a position like that, where there's a lot of eyes on you, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people that are saying positive things, a lot of people are saying negative things, and you have to kind of navigate all of that and to come out on the other side is a whole, and then to continue to have a career after that, right? You and I have more connective tissue than we thought. So back in the day, I had a little unknown record label called Distort. And we signed okay, Alexis yeah. on Fire and City in Color. And Joel was running Bedlam at the time and trying to manage the guys. And I didn't know that we mm -hmm. had that connection as well. I left shortly after we signed Alexis on Fire and City in Color. But they went on to do incredible things with Joel and mm -hmm. Dying Alone. And so there we go. We have more connection than oh, we thought. Yeah, it's, it's all very, very connected. I mean, Canada. Canada is a very, small very world. big country that's very, very small. <laughs> yeah, small music business world, for sure. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. Let's talk a little bit about the electric bass. I know a lot about the history of the Sheepdogs. I know about you starting in 2004 in Saskatoon. What I'm most curious about is the origin story. When did you first pick up the bass? How did you come to the instrument? Well, it's funny because, so, <laughs> the origin story of the band is kind of a funny one in the sense that it's almost like, it's almost too good to be true. But, I mean, growing up at a place like Saskatoon, there's a lot of people that leave and there's a lot of people that stay. And there's not really a lot of in between, right? And so when you're about 19, 18, 19 years old, well, that's when you start seeing people you went to high school with. Maybe some people are leaving. Some people are going to university. Some people are starting in the trades, whatever. Some people, a lot of people are moving to Alberta to go work on the oil rigs, especially back then. And we kind of had this weird moment where we, none of us really knew what we wanted to do. And this is really going to date me, but I was working at Blockbuster Video, which is obviously non-existent anymore, but. I worked at Blockbuster Video and I got fired. And the same day that I got fired from Blockbuster Video, which I really loved that job, but it wasn't like a career for me, but I was really didn't know what to do. The same day that I got fired, Ewan's long-term girlfriend from high school broke up with him. And so we were sitting in a car and it was raining outside and we were basically not talking. We were like sitting in the mall parking lot, the center mall in Saskatoon. And it was just raining and we were both basically like directionless. And we were like, why don't we try to do something different that might mix things up because we don't really know what Saskatoon has for us. And so we had this friend, Sam, who 
he we, at some point we had sort of entertained the idea of maybe playing music or something like that. None of us had played in bands before. We all played music a bit, but both Ewan and Sam's dads are professional musicians. I don't come from an overly musical family. We just decided for something to do that we would get together to break the sort of druthers of this sort of weird situation. And so we all just got together. Sam rented a drum kit. Ewan had a guitar he had recently bought. And I borrowed a bass from Sam because he had a bass. And that was the first time we jammed. And we basically just every day got together and played music and just tried to figure out how to play music together. So because we never really played in a band, we were just like playing cover songs and doing that. So story behind the band is that. And then eventually evolved into like, we just realized we were, we'd gone months and months and months and we'd rehearsed and jammed every single day. And then we started writing original songs and we started playing at open stages and it all evolved from there. And then we started touring and then we started putting out records and touring and it just sort of like very naturally evolved. But because none of us had played in a band before, we were all at the exact same level. And in a similar way, that was the first day that I ever played bass was the day that we played. Like I had played a little bit of guitar, a little bit of piano. Technically, you and I met in elementary school because we played in like a, a concert band playing clarinet together, but I was never much of a clarinet player either. And so it was just this sort of thing where we all just identified with a specific instrument. A bit of the like catalyst to me wanting to learn the bass is there was a bass player. I grew up in the late 90s, which arguably I'd say is maybe the worst era of music like ever. Like I think that like, it's funny, actually, we can talk more about this <laughs> some other time, but I recently finished a documentary on a Montreal band who I'm sure you know, named Tricky Woo. From, they're from sure. the sort of late 90s. So I, I made, me and a friend of mine have made a documentary on them because they're a very unique band from the late 90s. But during that time, I was also researching what other bands were playing in sort of 98, 99. And that's when I was in high school. And it's like your new metal, Limp Biscuit, Corn, lots of like kind of punk, which isn't the most exciting as far as it goes, as far as the bass goes. So I didn't have the greatest example of what a bass player could be, but there's this player named Jody Giesbrecht, who's from Saskatoon. He still lives there, I'm pretty sure. I don't really know him that well, but I saw him play at something. He was playing the bass, and he was playing it in a way that I'd never seen before. He was playing more complicated runs, playing up high, played the bass really high, not below his knees like most of the bands that I'd seen play at that point. And it's opened my eyes to how this instrument could be different. And then as I started to learn and listen to other music in high school, and hearing other bands with more exploratory players, I learned. And that was like, I was like, that's like kind of what I want to be. And that's what I do. So it opened my eyes to what the bass could do. So then, yeah, so then we started playing and I sort of just gravitated towards players that played it differently rather than just like pedaling on a root note along or playing a six string bass and playing the lowest possible note you could. Right? But it's kind of crazy that you decide to jam. And I guess it was having some muscle memory around the guitar and piano because otherwise you're just buzzing and have no idea how to hold the thing. I mean, you still had some knowledge of the instrument, I'm assuming. Yeah, for sure. I knew enough to figure it out. But the nice thing about it is it was a really a very supportive environment to do that because none of us knew how to play our instruments. So there was not this sort of waiting to, you know, we were all there very much supporting each other, figuring this out. And we would like bring up a song by a band that we'd like, and we'd try to figure out how to play that. And we'd all help each other out in figuring that out, which was a really great place to start because otherwise if you have other bands you played in or different skill levels, it could be a little bit frustrating if you're trying to learn that. And then exploring the different things that you could play. I would definitely pay money to hear what those early jams sounded like because they were pretty best <laughs> for sure. And what kind of bass was it? Do you remember? It was a Yamaha. It was a P-Bass style. It was black. 
black Yamaha. I think I'm pretty sure that's what it was. Yeah, but still kicking around somewhere. I was going to say, I'm going to guess in a city like Saskatoon, which is at the time probably at a quarter of a million people as a population, forget there wasn't many bass players. There probably wasn't many basses around either. It was probably not easy to find the instrument. I mean, it's funny though, because Saskatoon has a pretty diverse and pretty active music scene considering the size of the city. And I think it's one of those things, one of the things I always say about the way that our trajectory was, it has a very supportive music scene in the sense that I didn't realize this didn't exist in other small centers like that. Because right. And there was a lot of places to play. There's a lot of musicians playing in town. There's a lot of good music stores. It's on the way of Long and McQuaid now. But there was a couple places you used to be able to find cool stuff. That being said, any of the bases that I own, I've never bought in Saskatoon. This story that I tell Ryan is I started going to NAM over a decade ago. When I first actually started doing the podcast and ran out there to meet the No Trouble guys, and then I wound up doing keynote presentations there because my two lives collided. My business life was I'd get on stage and do a keynote and then I'd hang out with the bass guys. And it was a kid in the candy store because good luck trying to find the fretless bass that you could play in a store. They'd never let you because you'd damage the fretboard. And I just would go to Nam and be like, I didn't know that this many bases were... Because you go to a store and it really is compared to guitars. You get four or five if you're lucky on a good day. Mm-hmm. No, no, totally. And I think that's a funny thing about it is that It was never really about trying to find an instrument. It was much later in life. And when I started traveling, when I even started exploring what other instruments were, I think like we had a Long McQuaid. That's where my first bass was an American Fender P bass that I finally bought. And I bought a Long McQuaid. And yeah, no, it's great. I've played predominantly P basses for the majority of my career. Even now, it's always funny when we go to these guitar stores and they have three basses or whatever. But and so do you still have that marketplace didn't exist then? Oh yeah, of course. I have it on loan. I prefer to loan out my instruments when they're sitting rather than have them sit. So a friend of mine has been working on some recording, so I lent it to him because I have flats on it now. I've used that a lot for recording, so I've loaned a lot of my basses that I have. I still own all of them. I've never gotten rid of an instrument that I've bought, but I always just often put them on quasi, not permanent loan, but long-term loan to people so they can actually get used. Because I think it's a shame when guitars just sit. (laughs) I hate using words to pigeonhole music. There was a great line that I used to always remember when I was actually reviewing music for a living that was writing about music is like dancing to architectures. It's like very hard to talk about music (laughs) in words. But with that, you transcend rock and roll. In particular, I'm thinking about the latest video you have where I find myself smiling through it, even though I probably wasn't a child of the 70s. I mean, I grew up in the 70s, but I got into music more in the early 80s. But this feeling that you give off in the music takes everybody, I think, into a very different direction where there, yeah, there's components of modern, but there is a lot of this retro rock and roll feel in what you do. And I'm wondering where that comes from. If you're growing up in the late 80s and suddenly you're putting flat wounds on a precision bass, clearly you are exploring. And I'm curious who you were exploring as bass players go because the type of music that the Sheepdogs creates is so cool. I could go into, think about bands like Steely Dan. I could think about mm-hmm. Led Zeppelin. I mean, there's a whole lot of very cool bands that you, that there's little pieces or fragments that you can send, but it's completely unique as well. Well, and I think we're really conscious of that. We don't want to necessarily be a band that's like setting out to be like, let's make a song that sounds like Steely Dan or Led Zeppelin or whatever. And I think one of the mistakes, we were really conscious of that. A lot of bands would maybe lean a little bit too hard. It's funny you mentioned this earlier, but I actually attribute a huge reason to buy why we sound the way we do and what we're doing is because of Napster and used to being this sort of crux to the traditional music industry. But in a funny way, 
growing up in a place like Saskatoon, while I was able to find a base, bring music is a whole different thing, right? Yeah. Because if you don't live in a place like Toronto or a bigger center, you live in a very isolated place. You basically are reliant on having a friend who has a cool older brother that has a cool vinyl collection or a really good music store where you go in and somebody's like, ah, you like, you know, whatever, Led Zeppelin, you should listen to this. But Napster became popular when we were about grade 10, grade 11 for you and I. And we both had mini disc players. And sure. what became friends over in high school was we would trade mini discs and we would go home and we would, you know, do what people do now so easily is we, but we do it on dial up and all that kind of stuff is like downloading music and you would listen to Led Zeppelin, but then you'd be like, oh, I'm also going to listen to Black Sabbath or I'm also, and, you know, you would start going down that rabbit hole that people go down. And as a result, we ended up consuming so much more music at a much faster rate than we ever would have, or we weren't relying on traditional forms like radio or cool older brothers that smoke pot in the basement or whatever. If you don't have that guy, the internet kind of became that guy for us. And so Ewan and I got super into discovering and uncovering music and be able to not have to wait for that album to come into the music store, but to be able to just have it instantly resulted in us this fast consumption that takes place of media and people. Younger kids are so much more hip, so much other stuff or can get into so much more stuff than back in the day. So when we started the band, it, the idea was this is the music that we like. And so we're just going to do this. At that time, there was also a bit of a rock and roll revival happening, whether it's early Kings of Leon, Black Keys, all of those bands that later went on to be successful in a different way. They were doing that underground thing. There was a lot of other things, Jet and the Red Walls. The Struts and all that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Strokes, the Hives. There was all that kind of stuff happening in the early 2000s. And we were really into that. And we also then were really into old music, listening to things like CCR. And obviously, all of us grew up listening to the Beatles and CCR. And then later discovering other bands like, yeah, Steely Dan or... But we were really conscious and always have been really conscious of not wanting to be derivative because I think all good music is derivative, right? Every band, I mean, there's obviously exceptions, but for the most part, every band is looking at some other band and being like, I want to be kind of like that. Even the Beatles, right? John Lennon was infatuated with Chuck Berry and wanted like just idolize Chuck Berry. Yeah. Beach Boy. And then there's all the intermingling between all yeah. these bands, but... So we've always been super conscious of that, too, because we don't want to just be straight up derivative. When we set out to write music and record and all that kind of stuff, it's all about let's make the music that we want to hear and hope other people want to hear it. And that's how we've always done it. We have a very high bar that we set, but we are very conscious of not wanting to be exactly a specific way only because we still are making original music. Because we're really specific about the type of music we're playing, people are also quick to say, oh, you just sound like a band from the 70s or whatever, which we do. And I'm okay with that. It's a great era to model because it was the place where the 60s evolved into and it is the place where the 80s was edging towards. Mm -hmm. It was a very unique decade because you had so many genres colliding and people were also trying to figure out how to beat the disco system. I mean, there was a lot going on in the 70s that people don't realize. There's one thing that's interesting. Obviously, everything is far more interesting once you have the full picture. 20 years. Like, after, 20 years. Yeah. There's a really interesting thing about rock and roll where the best rock and roll seemingly always happens in reaction to, I think, a little bit of commercial success or yeah. early, late 60s, early 70s was a reaction to the stuff of the mid 60s. And the later 70s rock was a reaction to disco. And 
even grunge music was reaction a reaction to, hair, to metal. hair metal, right? Yep. And and again, the really bad music of the late 90s, there was this huge influx of rock music that happened. And you're seeing it right now too. Say what you will about bands like Greta Van Fleet. I mean, there is arenas full of young people and young girls that are going crazy for rock and roll music. And I think, again, it's a weird reaction to this adversity to what becomes popular and what becomes mainstream. And rock music out of any other genre has consistently popped up in those moments, which I think is really fascinating. And again, it's way more interesting when you can look at history on a timeline and find those points. But I found that really interesting. So that we're probably a product a little bit of that, where we didn't identify with what was going on in the late 90s. And suddenly there was this new wave of bands doing rock music. And we were just like, wow, this speaks to us. And we've carried that torch on. But again, at times before the Rolling Stones stuff, in 2006, 2007, people were like, you're never going to be on the radio sounding the way you do. You're just not. So if you want to sound like the radio, you have to make, at that point, it was overproduced, heavily produced stuff that was somewhat reminiscent of Nickelback or some of the other rock stuff that was happening that was like, they were sampling drums and piecing together yeah, like drums. Yeah, Lincoln so Park stuff. And- yeah, Lincoln Park or even Billy Talent or stuff that was yeah. on the radio. Billy Talent's obviously a great band, but it was interesting. So then it's funny then 10 years removed from that to be like, last year we were in the top five most played rock bands on Canadian radio and that's 10 years removed and this is after all this time where people tell you you should sound like this in order to do this but that stuff changes so much that we just wrote it out and we've wrote and we still continue to ride this wave of what's popular what's not and just stick to what we do well to your point earlier the idea that even the 90s was a bad era I think we'll be the judge of that in 20 years in 20 years we may see the 90s much the same way we think of the 80s yeah and their debate people are going to debate music and decades all the time, but there will be an argument for the 90s at one point because people will talk about bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and even what Neil Young was doing in the 90s. There'll be a lot of Nine Inch Nails. There'll be a lot of conversations about the 90s, I think, but it's well, I, I, I think it's already happening and I, I agree. I mean, I, I'm not a massive grunge fan, but I can see the influence and what's happened with that. I think my argument is I feel that the cusp of the millennium, like that sort of 98, 99 era is arguably one of the least creative or it seemed in a way like it just feels to me like some of the worst. And I think it's a combination of that's like the height of the power of the commercial US industry and bands being created for all that. And that was what was really interesting about doing all the research on my documentary on Tricky Woo was they were on the beginning, they were the proto version of what eventually happened in the 2000s, which was, again, a pushback against this overly commercialized. It was that like TRL life where it was like a mixture of Limp Biscuit and Britney Spears. And they were both on TV and butting heads and that Woodstock 99 and all the sort of disasters, yeah. ang- all the disasters, a weird angst that was going on at that time that just somewhat went away in the early 2000s. Yeah, society <laughs> was also really, really strange at that point. No, I'm, totally. I'm curious about when you're swapping many discs with your buddy, what you're also thinking about in terms of players, because at the same time, yes, you're being inspired by music and yes, you're in a very supportive environment because you're playing together and learning together as you grow, Mm -hmm. but independently, you're still going home. You still have your headphones. You're still trying to think of what this instrument is and what it can be. Yeah. Who are some of the players that were changing your mind? Or getting you to think differently about this bass and getting you not to maybe just be the person that stands between the kick drum and the guitar. <laughs> I think one of the best examples who gets a bad rap is Pete Cetera from Chicago. Look at so, you. 
So Pete's Tara, everyone is like, oh, you're my inspiration. And, you know, after Terry Kath died, tragically, he is considered the one that maybe ruined Chicago a little bit. The early stuff that, so in my mind, the way that I understand bass is it's the connection between the drums and the guitars. It can do what both those things can do in a way that can connect those two things. And there's lots of good examples of that. But Pete's Terra, if you listen to the Chicago Transit Authority or those early say, Chicago you're going records. Back to CTA for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You listen to the way that he plays. He's playing the bass like a lead guitar, but he's also playing it in a way that's still rhythmic. In that case, you're also connecting horns and all that kind of stuff. Paul McCartney, I think, is he changed the way that people played bass in the different eras in which he played it. But yeah, Pizza Terror for me is that one where when I started listening to Chicago and I was talking about Jody Giesbrick, this guy that inspired me to want to pick up the bass and play it high and then play high up on the neck. That's someone who really showed me that there can be this connection in how you can play it. You don't always have to just play something basic. There's always a place to play more basic bass. And obviously like any instrument, you can really go far away from that. Minimal, yeah. You can go minimal and you can go to the opposite where it's too much. That Chicago Transit Authority, all that stuff with Pete Stero, that to me was a really eye-opening thing. And still to this day, I listen to those records and I'm like, man, he's doing something really cool for that era. Something that not a lot of people were doing or at least not like he was. And that was one that definitely stands out to me for sure. Well, Ryan, congratulations. You get a gold star because I don't think anyone <laughs> has ever brought his name up in all the years we talk about players. And if I think about it, you're absolutely right. that Those CTA albums had something different going on in the groove, 100%. They're just a powerhouse group, and they've made a million albums. So lots of other examples, but that one always really stood out to me. I'm glad that I was the only one. But when you were talking about it, if you had removed Peter Cetera's name and said John Entwistle, I would have been nodding along too from The Who. Spending a lot of time, I actually had Steve Luongo on the show, who's the curator now for his estate and is doing oh, cool. some releases and things like that. But when I think about John's understanding of the horn. He was a French horn player and just how he would be able to, if you weren't paying attention, hold down the rhythm. But if you were paying attention, your brain would fry as a bass player. He was one of those as well. Absolutely. What a job to try to tie that whole thing oh, together too. <laughs> I mean, no, yeah. Well, that's the thing. We often don't talk about him because all you would think of is Keith Moon, Pete Townsend, and Roger Daltrey. And it's really hard to imagine somebody at any level, staying at that caliber. And John Entwistle, I'd argue if you split those four humans up and said vocalist, drummer, guitarist, Entwistle as a bass player is definitely in those pathions of being somebody who is that great. Absolutely. And also challenged at the time, especially oh. challenged what the role was and what was played. And that's what makes those people stand out. It's always really remarkable, too, when you think about it. If I listen to early things that we did as a band, I'm not like, wow, I was really challenging things be like it's wild to think that some of those guys were like 20 years old and like crazy or like john paul jones or something like that right those guys were jack bruce. young yeah jack bruce of course those guys were young but they'd also had a lot of time put in playing it's a wild thing and doing it in a way where everything we know of everything that's going on now but doing it in a way where you didn't really know what other people were doing and you would just do your thing and i mean there's obviously a lot of people and there's a lot of people unsung people that have done that too but it's really remarkable. They were doing this stuff at a time when they were 19 years old. That's crazy. I, I'll make it even crazier for you because it's even crazier <laughs> than that, which is the electric bass in and of itself was so new and comparable to other instruments too. So you're talking about them being so young, but also an instrument that had 
really not been all that explored. Some would argue that the base has so much more exploration space to it because of its youth, because of how young it still is when you compare it to a guitar, drum, or piano. And and if you think about music in the 50s and then into the 60s, even within jazz, there's obviously exploratory bass playing. Yeah, but you're talking of, primarily about a double upright. You yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. But, even, but even then, it, like know? the electrification and becoming like a guitar and in a lot of cases, people who were guitarists picking it up or whatever. But even then, I'm not a jazz aficionado by any means, but it feels like even then, it was like a lot of the bass was just literally holding it down too, right? And Yeah, it's strange. Like you can look to people, you're right, like Ron Carter or Mingus or Hayden. Like you, you can see how certain people attacked it or approached it differently. I just find it interesting that as an electric instrument, mm-hmm. it's a lot newer than we recognize. Oh yeah, too. no, that of course, the, yeah. You know, in the 60s, it was really a new instrument. Ultimately. No, of course, yeah. No, so it's absolutely. wild when you think yeah. about what somebody like Paul McCartney was doing at the time. And then it gets even wilder when you watched him play in the documentary that came out last year and you see, I don't know, even just watching him write songs on the bass crazy it, it, it's yeah. wild and even just the way he played it was i didn't i mean you see him play it live but how rhythmically he played it that's such a nerdy bass player thing but i was more found no, like it's he's nerdy. playing it he's playing it in such a weird way like that i'd no, never I, seen him do before <laughs> i had the same reaction i don't know if you saw the one with rick rubin the three two one mccartney because what's crazy about that one is rick rubin's isolating bass tracks and you would have sworn it was another instrument you wouldn't even know mm-hmm. his bass yeah. So there's certain things in that too where if you want an education in McCartney and bass playing, I feel like 321 McCartney really amplifies how unique he was approaching. It's also weird to see John Lennon in that documentary playing the five or six string, whatever it is, baritone guitar. It's strange too. <laughs> whatever they called it, it was weird. Yeah, it's on my list. It's so fascinating how you can learn new things about something that's obviously been just talked about to death for ever since those albums came out, but there's so many things that are being uncovered now with this footage and things like that and things you can learn. It's all very interesting. And it's really from a musician standpoint, but also from like the general public, I really understand and appreciate how prolific some of these people were that have just been, you know, things have moved on from them. So your father-in-law played a huge influence on my love of music in the early eighties, for sure. (laughs) I love that. It's a really funny thing. Tell everybody who your father-in-law is. Father-in-law is Peter Ferdet, who has played a lot of different people, predominantly Kim Mitchell in Canada. And yeah, say what you will. There's probably something you can read into there that maybe I, you know, with, uh, with my, my I married partner, into the family. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it was a really funny thing when I realized after we'd been hanging out who her father was and kind of had this moment like, whoa. But it's this it's, funny it's thing. Hard, so Yeah, it's hard to be Canadian and not have a Kim Mitchell story and recognizing that Peter also is an incredible singer who... A lot of the melodies are him. It's incredible. Yeah, all the harmony stuff is him. All the high stuff. All the high stuff, which is also funny. I'm a high harmony singer too. So there is something that actually, that's an interesting one. There's a lot of bass players that are also high harmony singers. And I, that is a really interesting one. Even like Chris Murphy from Sloan, another one. That's another Canadian reference. Pete Cetera was the high harmony singer in Chicago. Paul McCartney was saying a lot of the high stuff. It's a pretty interesting one that the lowest and the highest thing. But yes, Peter is an amazing, amazing musician. It's been really funny to get to know him in the family setting more so. Because you, know, you meet a lot of musicians and whatever. Like we watched the Beatles doc last year. We wait till we are all together at Christmas time and we all watch it together. It's a pretty funny one to have a very prolific and very talented bass player as your father. <laughs> I, I don't know if you know this or not, but I had Wiley Gelber on the show from the Dawes. And his father-in-law is Flea. <laughs> so, oh, no way. <laughs> yeah, there you go. 
Oh, wow. That's got to be an interesting one. Yeah. And it, the funny part is I met Keith, my partner, not related to music. So you could see how that would happen, but it was very removed from music in which we met, which was just a funny roundabout way to come back to it. But uh, yeah, amazing. I mean, it's pretty cool. And obviously I know Peter Moore as my father-in-law. I've seen him play and stuff, but then I start watching stuff with him and watching stuff from back in the day. I'm just like, oh man, he's a story in himself for sure. It's really interesting you mentioned the band Sloan because they're back out and doing stuff. And it's a band that when I was writing about music again, starting in the late 80s and then all through the 90s and beyond, they were in a weird way. And this is total compliment, right? What's happening with the sheet reminds me of what, was, what Sloan was doing. Of course. This really feely music that hit a certain way that had certain feelings of music of past, but felt very fresh. I actually literally had a note that what the sheepdogs represent to me reminds me a lot of what Sloan represented to me. I mean, that's a huge compliment. Yeah, Sloan 100%. Is, Sloan is one of those bands that they have had a lot of success and a lot of accolades, but nowhere near what they should. Is it, yeah, for sure. And prior to the pandemic, they did the Navy Blues tour celebrating that record. And for me, that's my favorite Sloan record. It was cool to see them playing in some of these U.S. places and having a lot of people come out and stuff because... But even recently, LA-based artist, I saw things Sloan, and when they were they were playing Toronto, and they jokingly put Sloans on the guest list, and I'm like, <laughs> you know, damn right they should be. Like they they deserve so much more. They've had so much success, but they deserve so much more because not only are they, yeah, like I I would look up to them. I listened to their albums when I was a kid. I went to their concerts. They're a band that we definitely looked up to. A Canadian band that did their own thing, all sang harmonies, definitely influenced by old rock and the Beatles and all that stuff, but did their own thing. And the thing that that band has, I would say maybe we don't have, is each one of the members of that band could be a successful songwriter. It's like crazy. It is it's crazy. mind-blowing how crazy. good of Yeah, and they all come together and do these songs together. And I have nothing but mad, mad, mad respect. One day you and I can have a much longer debate about the 90s and then in relation to Canadian bands. I think... Canada had such an amazing run of incredible music from lighter pop rock to very heavy bands that never mm -hmm. transcended on the heavier side. We had bands like Varga. I'd even say band like Voivod never really broke to the way they mm -hmm. should on the other side. There were so many bands from I'm Other Earth to even the Tea Party that, again, are staples here, yeah. but should be way more well-regarded across the world if you like rock and roll. These albums were life-changing. There's that weird divide. Look at what was going on with Rush, Triumph. But at the same time, Kim Mitchell never had, there was no, no success exactly. in Canada. And Kim Mitchell was arguably doing like very similar and equally as interesting things at that time coming out of that Max Webster Prague situation. But talk to Peter about it. We never had a US record deal. So we never yep. got to go in it's the crazy. US. Or, or you look at someone like a Tom Cochran who has had success, but there was lots of other bands during that time that, you know, that's a little bit later now, but uh, more into the 90s. But yeah, it, it, it's a weird thing. And I don't know what it is. I think there is something that's sometimes bands are a little bit too Canadian, if that makes sense. And maybe it just doesn't translate. But that's what's so funny to us. I was just in the southern US. We were just playing. We played all over the US. And it's just so funny because we meet people and they're like, you're more southern than most of the bands I know well, here. That, and yeah. it's like, yeah, and it's this funny thing where they identify it. But still we haven't necessarily broken in some of those places in the same way. And there's like that weird border. I don't know. It's so bizarre. Yeah. When I was writing as a music writer, I used to not write with my use. And I used to speak, which I do now. People can't identify my accent as Canadian. 
And I tried as hard as I could to be <laughs> US based. And to this day, it's the same thing where wherever I am, people are shocked when I, they hear I'm Canadian. They just, because my writing mm-hmm. doesn't have those little colloquialisms and things. And it's hard to pinpoint because it's exactly that. If I closed my eyes, I wouldn't see the Sheepdogs as being a Canadian band at all. No, and I think that there's certain things about our band that are Canadian, and we're not afraid to lean into that in the what we do. And again, we live in an era where you don't need to sound like anything specific. I mean, say what you will about streaming, but I think the strength of streaming is the fact that back in the day, if you wanted to become popular, you had to sound a certain way, you had to lean into a certain sound. You don't anymore. There's literally advertising incentive for Spotify or whoever to push a certain type of music and continue to get you to want to listen to things. And so we have an algorithm that's pushing our music on people in a way that's like kind of funny. We played in Asheville, North Carolina on this tour. And I met a girl after the show earlier that day, she had heard one of our songs on her algorithm on Spotify and drove two and a half hours to come and see us because she saw we were playing that night. That just didn't happen before. That stuff just doesn't happen. Or the fact that someone can be listening like and that's the difference. You talk about I Am Other Earth. If somebody was listening or like something like Our Lady Peace is a band that was never popular in America in the same way that they were in Canada. But if you were listening to something similar to that, a Spotify in that era might have tapped that on. But probably yes. I Am Other Earth wouldn't have quite worked on radio in America at that time. So they wouldn't have that same success. So we're very fortunate that we live in an era that we can do what we do. And there's still all the pressures of like chasing different things and labels telling you certain things. but we live in an era where we can be a little bit more who we want to be. And we're thankful for that, for sure. It'll be 20 years that you're in this band playing. Do you think about the bass differently? Are there certain players you think of? When you think about bass players, do you think of people who are modern? Or do you find yourself exploring people like James Jamerson or weirder types of music that you were not as interested in as before? You know, it's funny. I feel like as time has gone on, I've maybe actually explored less or maybe explored other things. And maybe brought, I don't know, that's a tough one. Because I feel like I'm maybe not as exploratory as I was as a younger player. Mm. And maybe I think of it more as when we're creating a song, how it can fit in that song versus trying to mimic something. But I also feel like I'm probably more apt to explore different things and explore different instruments and how they interact with other instruments and different types of music and maybe then bring that back. I don't find that I'm as exploratory maybe that's just a product of i think also you know as you get older and you play more and sometimes music you you get a more complicated relationship with music or you seek out different things in music that you were and i not to say that music is ruined from me or anything but i think i actually explore less or i'm more interested in exploring other things like just yesterday i was listening to milt jackson who's a vibraphone player for me and I was really intrigued. I went down this rabbit hole of really getting into listening to how, I mean, vibraphone is, is an you know, interesting instrument, but not something that, I mean, I actually played vibraphone on, on one of her albums, but very, very poorly. But I was really intrigued by that instrument and listening to it and how it interacted. And I started thinking about that in working on new music, but it's funny because I'm more attracted to that and thinking about that or the pedal steel was an instrument I was very, I'm very fascinated by. And I, Again, very hard instrument to play, and I could play it a little bit, but not well. But I'm very fascinated by that as an instrument. So I think I'm more drawn to that kind of stuff than I am maybe exploring bass. But it makes sense because you're talking about two instruments that have a foundational relationship because there's the percussive nature of it and then the note nature of it. Bass is very much like that, too. Totally. No, I totally agree. And I think maybe that's 
That, that would make sense. I mean, I feel it's it like does. a therapy. It's like a therapy session. You're like it's what I do. It's free, yeah. Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes, it's great. And I, I don't know if maybe I feel a little bit guilty that maybe, but yeah, no, I mean, I still appreciate things and explore things. And I love discovering new players. Or I love discovering new music. And I'm like, oh, the bass on this is awesome. But I'm also, yeah, I don't find that I'm out there just really seeking it. I think I just have these moments where I'm like, oh, this is great. Or, and I definitely appreciate different types of players probably more so than I did before, for sure. The conversations are usually interesting because when we start exploring what we find inspirational, what I've found is it's usually two paths. Path one is I'm looking at genres. I'm digging deep into jazz or fusion or people talk about their rush phase when we talk about the phase with their Jaco Pastorius <laughs> phase or whatever it yeah, might yeah, be. Yeah. But the other one that comes up quite a lot is geography. That people start looking at music from Norway or from East Africa. And it's interesting how people discover because you would think intuitively it's a bit of what you had said earlier about the Spotify algorithm. And yet what I've discovered with players is that it's usually genre-based or geography-based. And I find that so unique in an algorithm world. That is kind of funny. I don't know if that, I don't know where I would fall under in either of those categories. It is interesting. I think it is just easier to really go deep on that stuff. But now you can just go so deep. Oh, so easy. And it's incredible. We live in such a golden age for that. As much as like it has put challenges on music, it's such a golden age of being able to just Man, it's so cool to be able to just at your fingertips. I was listening to Sirius XM and I heard a Milt Jackson song. I'm like, wow, this is really cool. And then I looked it up and the next thing you know, I'm making dinner and I'm listening to a whole bunch of different albums spanning from the 50s up until the 70s and getting really into it. It was yesterday. Like that, that was like, it's all, so cool. it all happened. And I love that. Yeah, I love when you choose an artist. I do this a lot with people like Chick Corea and you just hit play and it just creates yeah. the radio station for you and... The places it takes you is unbelievably crazy. These are things that I'll sometimes come across a song and it'll trigger something. And I'll look at it and realize that the cover of it was a cassette that my dad had in his collection. Mm -hmm. And he just gave me the case. And, and then artists that I'd never heard of or the artists I've heard of but never knew about this album where they guest starred on someone. You're right that you can hit that button and be taken on a journey that is just something we could just never have had before. No way. Well, it's remarkable because it's also archiving in a way that for a while there, Light in the Attic was uncovering albums and getting them out there. But now we have this incredible database of music history that only existed in guys' houses who had giant vinyl collections or obviously libraries in the US and Canadian will have archives and things like that. But having an accessible version of that is an incredible thing, both for guys like you and me are also younger people. It makes me excited to think of what that little spark of discovery and accessibility did for me and my other guys in my band as younger people and what that's going to be like. Say we will, but there's a lot of negative things about the internet. Like That is a really neat thing. And I think that will create a very interesting dynamic in future music because you're going to have an entire generation of people that have access to every single piece of recorded music at their fingertips. As much as there's been a lot of conversation recently about AI music and is that going to take sure. away? And, and I don't think AI can ever replicate what happens in the room with a bunch of people or just in a person's head when they passively consume things and then spit those back out in a way that I think that human touch can never be mimicked. And I think that's what's going to be really interesting about moving forward is there could be really amazing things that are going to come out that we can't even understand right now. Well, they agree. I mean, I think back to even living in a city like Montreal, where we had Steve's Music Store and other retailers. 
but you would go into the book section at the time and there wasn't much for the electric bass. It was mm-hmm. three or four books. And to think of your ability to have things like Scott's bass lessons and things like that, even for like putting aside all the insane players you could see on YouTube, the access to figure out music has never been more accessible. There's just no way. Forget discovery of just music, learning how to play music. We can't not be creating an amazing civilization of players. There's no way. <laughs> yeah, no, and it's exciting. And I think that also there's about room for people to build a career in a way that you're maybe not going to have as many people becoming the multi-platinum selling artists, but you have a lot more people that are able to sustain a little bit more of a career because there's a lane for them that they don't have to just follow a single track commercial lane, which I think is really not to say like career in music is specifically commercial. There's a lot of amazing players that make a living that just play house gigs and play around town. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that, but I think there's more lanes for people to take those different avenues, even if it isn't every single artist is making millions of dollars a year or something like that. Last thought is this line we keep hearing. It comes up all the time. It's three words and it's rock is dead. And I'm asking you this question from the perspective of, I think about YouTubers like Rick Beato talking about how different it is to record and how the way rock bands would record. Some producers go back and listen to these albums in the 60s and 70s and they can't listen to it because they hear all the quote unquote mistakes. (laughs) Instrument was slightly out of tune, vocal track, whatever it might be, because they were recording live into tape and nothing could be put through pass filters and perfected and digitized (laughs) the way it is. What do you think about people who say that and just the general vibe of the day. It's a lot of bands are touring. It's very busy out there too. Do you think that there's some truth to this idea that rock is dead or is it absurd? I think rock has moved in and out of popularity ever since the beginning of rock music, right? Wherever you want to pinpoint that, but it's never gone away. And I think what's really interesting about rock music for me is maybe this is like a little bit froofy or something, but rock music is more about how it makes you feel than it is about do it. And I think as long as you have people making it honestly, I think rock music can also get very commercialized and get very bad and go in bad directions and whatever. I don't think rock could really ever die because it seems to be, it's going to change. It's going to be different. But I think there's something you said about how it makes people feel and how, what it brings out in people and what we've seen it do that. And we've seen that when it's at its absolute height in this frenzy of, whether it's the Beatles or Led Zeppelin or Nirvana or anything like these moments in which like people just even right now with Greta Van Fleet, as much as people take jabs at Greta Van Fleet for whatever reason, I think it's really cool that they're getting a young generation into rock music and they're filling arenas to do it. And in a way that is speaking to people, I was in a music store the other day in Texas and there was a 13 year old girl there with her mom. Her mom was very, very, very awkwardly helping her daughter. And her daughter's going through the artists that she wants to buy records for. And it feels like her mom is probably actually not that much older than I am. And she's like, oh, I want to get a Led Zeppelin record. Oh, I already have that Led Zeppelin record. Oh, I want to get a Stones record. Oh, I already have that. And the mom, and at one point she wanted to get a Beastie Boys record. And then they were looking in the rock section. I just said, actually, that'll be in the hip hop section. And her mom was like, oh, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, right (laughs) up. To me, that is, it's like, that's amazing. That is something you haven't seen in a while where you have the awkward parent taking the all-knowing preteen who's going to buy vinyl records and wants to buy rock music. And, and that's, that to me is those little glimmers of, I don't think they can go away. But I think that combined the fact that we live in an era where 
you don't have to be a specific genre in order to be popular. Because obviously, honestly, like R&B and hip hop is the pop music of right now. And then arguably on the other side is country. And rock has its moments in kind of both of those and has had its moments over the years. There's always just this like, it, it's, it's consistent. It'll pop up and pop down, but you don't see it completely dropping off. So I have a lot of hope even just having just gone on a tour and seen the excitement that people have for rock music conversations I have where people are like, I love that you're still doing what you're doing. Thank you for doing what you're doing. And we're one of many, many bands, older and younger than us that are doing it. Within music, it's continually burned. It's like a pilot light that you could turn the burner on and it will go hot, but you could turn it off. But that pilot light just stays lit and people just seem to be attracted towards that heat for whatever. And it, again, it will always change how it's made. And it will always change how it's presented. But I think there's something about how that makes you feel that will never go away. Yeah, I agree. There's something about a power G chord with distortion with a bass drum into a snare 4-4 four, four, that it's very hard to go away. <laughs> That's a very hard thing to get out of your DNA. Yeah, and then a really cool guy or girl flailing around and just losing themselves. That's what I love about music festivals is that I've always loved that about rock music is that I very much identify in this. And some people might like, I'll be walking down the street and I'll get heckled because I have long hair or I'm wearing clothes look like the 70s, but that's just what I like to wear. But there's something that's amazing about a music festival or being on stage or being in the audience where no matter what you do, whether you're an accountant or you're a doctor or whatever, you can go and you can be whoever you want. You can put on that leather jacket that makes you feel cool and you can go and you can just forget about anything. That's something that happens within rock music that I feel doesn't happen in a lot of other genres. and. I love that when people can kind of just like let loose and, and forget who they are. It allows people to let their freak flag fly a little bit on stage. Seeing exactly what you're saying, but also a guy wearing something that's outlandish, like a Jimi Hendrix, where it's like, is he wearing a woman's blouse? It's like that like freaky thing that seems to be along with it. And I love that about it. I'm glad their bands like the Sheepdogs keep on keeping on because the music is great. <laughs> and the new music is amazing. The new album, the latest video has been great. It's been great to connect, Ryan. I can't thank you enough for your time. Let people know where they can find out more about the band and where the most active socials are for you. Sure. I mean, I think probably the most best place, obviously, the sheepdogs.com has all the dates and updates, but probably the most active is Instagram. It's at the sheepdogs. Facebook is the sheepdogs. We're pretty much everywhere. We're everywhere doing our thing, trying to try to keep up with what various places you want to put things up there. So you can find us. We're on all streaming and all that kind of good stuff, too. That's great. Ryan, thanks so much for your time. No, thanks so much. Much appreciate it, man. Been great. Uh-huh.